We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. We live in a culture that wants us or believes that there is our best self, our best version out there. And I believe that too. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think that like my role as a psychiatrist isn't just to get you from, you know, being depressed to undepressed. Like I want to take you to the next level. I want to take you to being optimal. Who are you meant to be? What are all the things that you want to achieve? Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and connection in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a psychiatrist and professor at NYU Langone Medical Center with a private practice in Manhattan where she works with individuals, couples, and families. An expert in providing medical and mental health advice, she's a frequent advisor on The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, 2020, ABC World News, and other well-known television series. She's clearly passionate about her work in educating the public. Today, we want to pick her brain about the field of psychiatry, how to decide whether to go on psychiatric medication, and the benefits and risks involved. So welcome, Dr. Suvarma. So good to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm so excited and looking forward to our conversation. We're going to be talking about psychiatric medication today. Sue, you're a psychiatrist, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what your role is as a psychiatrist. Sure. So, you know, I love being a psychiatrist, and I think it's like one of the best jobs in the world, and it like is the reason I went to medical school. And my role, you know, it's sort of like when I think about a person, right? Like we want to know everything about them um, in mental health. And, you know, it allows me to sort of see the biological and genetic component of what's going on because we know a big part of a lot of the mental health disorders do involve, you know, whether it be vitamins or nutrition deficiencies or metabolic deficiencies or something like diabetes or hypertension or stroke or Parkinson's, all of this informs and changes our brain and behavior. So I'm definitely interested in this profession so much because of the medical lens that it offers you, but also because of the psychological and social components and being able to tie all of them in. And when you see a person, even though I'm not, you know, a practicing primary care doctor to, to be able to understand like where that medical layer is, but then also to know who the person is in the world. I want to know about their childhood, their background, their, you know, the parents that they grew up with, where do they go to school about their education Obviously, you know, when we take a mental health um, history in terms of like substance abuse or legal history or family, um, family history. So just being able to look at the multiple layers and lenses through which our lives are defined and shaped and then being able to sort of address or target treatment, you know, based on several of those components. So it feels like very 
com- a comprehensive approach to working with somebody. And what are the main uh, reasons why people s- would seek a psychiatrist for help? You know, sometimes it's interesting because how a person chooses, you know, sometimes somebody may say, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm so depressed that I, I can't get out of bed and I'm having difficulty functioning or um, I'm in therapy and I, and I really like my therapist, but it's been a long time and I feel like I could use additional help or, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not able to utilize the therapy. I'm not able to go. Um, I'm not able to maximally function in life, um, or that I've been on medications before, or that I have a friend who's on medication. We know that people who have um, other friends who've been on medication or been in therapy in general are more open, um, four or five times more likely to seek their own treatment if their friend has, um, or friend or family member has been in treatment. So, you know, I, when, we th- when we think about the sort of definition of disorder, it, it has to do with symptoms, but how do the symptoms affect your functioning? So if somebody says, yeah, like, I drink, I drink every night, I drink heavily, but it doesn't affect me. They might be in denial or it, it, it really isn't impacting their functioning. So people come, I think, at a breaking point, you know, to sort of short answer to that, that something is not working, the other shoe is dropped. Um, and then because I also do cognitive behavioral therapy um, in my practice with and without medication, sometimes people will just come for therapy to say, I like the fact that you do both if and when I need it. And I personally try not to prescribe medications, believe it or not, like, you know, I do have a pen and prescription pad, as I say, but I try not to use it if I don't have to, because I just think that there's so many other ways to treat somebody. But I definitely am open and, and, and in support of people who need medications, if and when they need it. Which I think is so important as a psychiatrist. You know, I think there are many psychiatrists that see that medication is really their role and mm-hmm. and that that is this, the only solution. So it's so wonderful that you also take it from a more holistic perspective and that you can continue to treat even if medication isn't the right decision. Yes. And I'm wondering, like, how, how do you determine whether a person warrants medication or not? Mm-hmm. So, you know, first of all, you know, it's very interesting, like asking, I always like to ask somebody like a variety of questions, like, you know, we would ask, you know, how did you hear about me? What made you interested? So getting a little sense of like why they chose you, I think is, is, is interesting and what their goals are and what they're hoping to get. And sometimes people will come very clearly knowing that, you know, I know that you do prescribe and I'm interested in it now. And I ask more questions like, were you hoping to walk, uh, walk away with a prescription today? And if, if, and when I'm able to, I like to have the option of having if possible, and I know that not everybody has the luxury of time or luxury of being in therapy or, or, or being able to come up, come that frequently, but if possible, I like to see somebody for an extended evaluation if in an ideal situation, I don't have to prescribe that at that time. Um, and being able to get a comprehensive snapshot, like a comprehensive view of what they're dealing with. Because somebody could come in in crisis. You know, someone called me this week and they're like, I, find, I found out that my partner, you know, um, you know, is involved in infidelity and this is really traumatic and I'm seeing somebody at their lowest point, right? But how are they doing next week? Do they really need a prescription? Are they going through life? You know, like life does not warrant prescriptions. You know, we call it adjustment disorder or whatever it might be, but it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So it's fair game and I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel it's ethical. I, I, or it might even border on sort of neglect when somebody writes you a prescription after 15 minutes without doing a thorough comprehensive evaluation. And that happens a lot of times. Like I teach a psychopharm course um, at NYU Bellevue to um, non, uh, non-psychiatrists, so cl- mental health clinicians, mostly, you know, sort of PhD uh, psychologists. I've been for social workers before who are maybe doing their internship. Um, 
And one of the things that I say is like a lot of primary care doctors, God bless them because we are so, you know, under a lot of places are understaffed with psychiatry. So primary care doctors end up being the prescribers. They have a 50, if they have 10 minutes with a patient and the patient's like, I have high blood pressure and diabetes and I have five medical problems. And oh, by the way, sometimes I really feel depressed or oh, by the way, I, I want to hurt myself. The primary care doctor has 30 seconds at the end of that visit because it was not prioritized to write you a prescription. They have not done a differential diagnosis to be like, oh, okay, what are the reasons for the fact that you're feeling down? You know, and we can get into that in terms of like, what are the sort of common differential diagnosis for some basic symptoms, you know? And again, you might be presenting with a symptom, but what is that symptom indicative of? Is it a disorder? Is it a normal grief reaction? Is it, you know, something situational that would pass with time? So I like to be able to understand what were the factors, what were the precipitants, what were the triggers? Why is someone coming to see me? What is their agenda? Do they want to leave with a prescription? Why? Has it helped them before? So, you know, it's a lot of information and I might spend with them 60 to 90 minutes if time permits to be able to get a sort of thorough analysis because I think that when you prescribe somebody, you're entering into, you're, you've already entered into maybe a treatment relationship when you've met them, depending on the understanding, if it's more than just an evaluation. Um, and then you're writing a prescription. So you're entering into sort of a treatment approach and you should make sure before you give a treatment that you have a proper diagnosis. And I see that so often, especially with, let's say, primary care you know, doctors where they might be, somebody says, I have problems concentrating. Problems concentrating could be any number of things. It's anxiety, it's depression, it's um, ADHD, it could be bipolar disorder, it could be anything. So it's irresponsible if you're giving a stimulant to somebody who might have a history of psychosis or mania or undiagnosed, or they're a young adult and they haven't had a first break right now, or you're giving them a stimulant or you're giving them an antidepressant to flip them into mania. So, you know, I think that it's, to me, I don't take writing medications lightly. And I remember as an intern, uh, I, I did my psychiatry residency training. So, you know, just for listeners, like a psychiatrist goes to four years of medical school with everybody else who does pediatrics and surgery, you know, and all sorts of other uh, specialties. And then we do another four years of psychiatry residency training. And in the first year, we spent a lot of time on the internal medicine wards. And what I was struck by as an intern, as a medical intern, um, was seeing patients who would get hospitalized and they would say hospitalized for the surgery to remove their appendix, for example, if they were on an antidepressant. Next thing you know, they have complications and now they've been admitted for like the week. The one medication that consistently, this was during my residency, I'm sure things have changed, I hope they have, one, the one type of medication that consistently didn't get put back on board, so people would say, okay, well, what medications were you on at home? And the person would tell them. The one medication that didn't get put back on board for the time that they were there were antidepressants or anti-anxiety or any kind of psychiatric medication. And I was so struck by that because I was like, do you guys think that this is like, like a placebo pill that you can just abruptly stop? Like that sort of awareness and level of importance that, you know, that there, you know, there could become potential complications or, you know, it, it basically said to me that like, we don't understand the value of what this means. Um, and mental health isn't a priority. Yes. Yes. And not even understanding why the person was prescribed or the importance or what the discontinuation or withdrawal would mean. So, you know, going back in terms of how do you make that assessment, you want to look at a person's functioning, lack thereof, what their expectations are, what their time frame is in terms of getting better. So if a person is saying like, I'm a head of a company or I'm a parent or whatever it is, I have a lot of responsibilities in my life. I need to get better soon. Um, so the severity, the intensity, the duration, 
the level of responsibility. These would all be factors to say, we need to start something today. If a person says, I'm suicidal, I want to hurt myself, I'm having thoughts, even if they're just morbid, passive thoughts, I don't want to go into inpatient hospitalization, I have a very important job, I manage people, I run a family, like whatever it might be, I have a lot of responsibilities, I need to get better now, and I've been on X, Y, and Z in the past, I got off of it, I know it works for me, you know, so it's like literally looking, making such an individualized, customized decision, weighing all of the variables that are, that are in the picture, past, present, future. The two things that really stand out to me about what you're saying uh, one is that a lot of people assume, a lot of people who come to therapy assume that the therapist is there to make them happy, right? And the same can be, uh, I think, even more so with psychiatry, that people seek psychiatry um, for like a magical pill that's going to take away all of their symptoms. And, and that there is something really important about teaching people like life can be painful. That's part of life, like learning to cope with pain, that there's not going to be some magical pill that's going to take away sort of the normal existential angst we all have or, or grief or whatever else is coming up. Um, and then also that, uh, you know, people have this idea that they can just try a bunch of different medications sometimes or that they can go. I have had patients who've gone off their medication very abruptly and had incredibly severe symptoms afterwards and, and then, you know, needed a lot of follow-up care. And so there's just not a lot of education for people around how serious to take uh, psychiatric medication. Like it's not just, you know, like over-the-counter meds that, that you can just, you know, take and stop. It's, it's serious. It creates changes in the body and the brain. Totally. Yeah, you're right. And, and, I, and I appreciate what you're saying in terms of both points of like, number one, the existential grief of like being able to separate what's normal. Um, and, you know, a lot of people that we work with will have, you know, trauma in their past, abuse, neglect, you know, or some variety of that, you know, like I'm getting more and more interested in this concept of like adverse childhood events and the idea that 50% of people will have at least one of them in their past. And what's included in that is having a parent that might have had mental illness, domestic violence, abuse, incarceration, but also divorce in the family. And we know that divorce rates being so high as they were like in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, that, you know, you're going to be dealing with one source of, of trauma or adverse childhood, you know, event in your lifetime, at least half of people, if not more. And what that does is puts, makes us more vulnerable and more susceptible to depression or anxiety. And not just that, but a lot of physical problems puts us more at risk for obesity, for hypertension, for smoke, substance abuse. So, you know, we're already coming in if we talk about like the one or two or three hit hypothesis in terms of like having trauma in the past and then there's some sort of maybe trigger that's happening now. And one of the biggest parts of what I do is help people learn effective coping skills because I tell them that, you know, the medication for different people it serves, there's no one right answer. For some people who will say I've had multiple episodes of major depression and when I get off of the medication, I have... Um, symptoms that come back and they're debilitating and I have had thoughts of, of harm or I have been hospitalized in the past for any number of reasons, that tells me that maybe we might be dealing with a variety of things here, one of which might be either treatment-resistant depression or sort of just a chronic depression or um, maybe a dysthymia, like a double depression. So the likelihood of that person needing to stay on medication for long term might be more likely. And, you know, they say that if you've had one episode of major depressive disorder, 
you are likely to have a, uh, a second episode 50% of the time. If you've had two, it increases the risk of reoccurrence to 75%. And if you've had three, to 90% or more. So it's so important that somebody, and I, and I hate to say this because I have respect for so many of my colleagues, but I feel like in general, the history taking, like it's not going to happen in one day. It is going to happen over multiple sessions and be aware of that and invest the time and the energy to get all of this relevant information. And even if it means the person like getting records or like you, you know, reaching out, which is harder to do, I think, in private practice. You know, I, I know that when you're working in a clinic, it might be easier to be able to collaborate with other um, colleagues and get history and relevant charts and, you know, being with reimbursement being what it is, like we don't get reimbursed for doing all of this sort of background work. And if a person gives you a stack of hospital papers in your private practice, we're really going to be spending two hours sort of, you know, doing the due diligence that, that you were taught in training. So I think it becomes harder but it's worthwhile and, you know, knowing what medications have been tried in the past and, and being able to, like, I have patients like fill out intakes that says when they were on it, why they were on it. But then I go over it with them to really understand when someone says something didn't work for me, I said, like, I want to hear more about that. If it worked for you or didn't work for you. And the reason I say that is because if a medication didn't work for you, who prescribed it, under what circumstances, for what symptoms, for how long, what were the side effects and what was the reason that it was stopped and what were the benefits? And the reason I ask that is because somebody may say, I was started on a medication and they'll, and I'll ask them what dose and they say, I don't remember. And I said, okay, well, let me know when you, when you can, if there's any way you can find out because before we write that medication off, we should know if you were ever put on an appropriate dose. Cause a lot of times people will say I was on a medication and I'll find out that they were just on a starting dose. And that often happens when someone goes to the primary care doctor who might have started them with the starting dose said goodbye, never had a follow-up visit planned. And that's standard, right? We're like, they might have gone for their annual visit. They talked about five things. One of them was the, the antidepressants. Because antidepressants are not valued or seen in the same way, they're given a prescription thinking it's like candy. And I'm, you know, being facetious here, but, you know, and, and then there's no follow-up plan. And what happens is a few things. One is the person will try it for, for a week. They've had side effects. And, you know, I'll get into some of those side effects, but they'll say it didn't work for me or I had side effects and I stopped it within a week. And then they write it off. It didn't work or I didn't like it or whatever. So in order for a medication to be considered that it didn't be, it wasn't effective, we have to say that it was on the right dose, the therapeutic dose for the right amount of time, which is like at least eight to 10 weeks. And then you want to know if the person was in therapy, they have benefited, you know, as well. And then were they compliant? So a lot of times people will look back and I always ask my patients questions like, how often do you take it or how often do you miss it? So it, it's asking the question in a way that assumes that it's normal. We're going to miss it. And, you know, I just want to know, are we talking about more, like two or three times a week or, you know, every day you're missing it? Because a lot, so that's another reason it's sort of like treatment adherence. So all of these sort of like things have to line up for us to be able to say whether medication worked or didn't. And then the definition of treatment resistant depression really is that there's two or more episodes where a person, I'm sorry, two or more medications were tried for the full amount of time for the right dose and then they didn't work like and didn't and, and that, that they didn't work not necessarily that the um that there were side effects and that was the reason why the, the person stopped them so we knew that the medication was efficacious but it wasn't tolerable you know and those are sort of important things and you know tolerability and and how efficacious the medicine is which are two separate issues. I think this really speaks to the importance of um, working with a psychiatrist closely when you decide to take medication. I mean, there's so many components, there's so many details, there's so many ma so much management around this. And I mean, to Sina's point, the real lack of education around 
psychiatric treatment. I mean, I think about so many of the patients that come through my office that can fall into these really polarized categories. The one being the kind of quick fix. I don't need to do the work. And I think that's really dangerous too, because you do, you, you take medication and then there's all sorts of pseudo what you were speaking to trauma or unprocessed emotions or things that the medication can help stabilize, but it's not going to help you kind of work through these deeper parts of your history. And then the other end, the other group of patients that come in and are terrified of medication because they think it's going to transform their personality. It's going to make them into robots. They're going to gain weight, all of these side effects that are going to take away who they are when actually many of them really need it. And, and just to, to, to think that every time they have a depressive episode, their mental health gets worse or, you know, bipolar or schizophrenia. I mean, that can be really dangerous if they don't seek psychiatric help. Totally. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought that up in terms of like, so, so if a person does really need it, then what you want, and they're, let's say they're doing the work. So this is like a very unique, you know, situation where they're like, I've been in therapy and I'm working hard, but like, I'm still really suffering and I don't want it. Like, why, why should you, why should you suffer if there, if there are medications that within a reasonable amount of time for at least two thirds of the population will work and when they work and if, and when they work, it's, it is can be magical or transformative in a way, but in a good way, in the sense that there are people who have come in that says, you know, I didn't realize I might've been depressed most of my life. Like a lot of the people that I talk to will say, I can look back as early as 10 or 11, sometimes 14, 15, and, you know, other depression or anxiety that the symptoms were there, but they were subtle, that they were not recognized by the family. And if it was a high achieving, high functioning person, they probably went under the radar because unfortunately, like, like lack of awareness, lack of education, parents really have a hard time accepting and admitting that like their kids need help because then it puts, you know, the spotlight on them. And a lot of, unfortunately, parents internalize, like I'm not a good enough parent or why does my kid need therapy? And they have their own reservations and biases and hesitation against seeing a mental health provider. So it's, and if the kid wasn't disruptive, if they were high achieving, their grades were good. The parents were like, what are you talking about? I have so many patients who say like, I wish that my parents got me help earlier. I wish that they would talk to me or ask me and how could they not see it? Like I was in my room, I was crying. And at the same time, when we talk more about it, we could say, well, they didn't realize it because you were a track athlete and you were getting A's and they were looking the other way or they had their own mental health problems and or they were drinking or they were not available or they were working and whatever it might be. Um, so much is missed early on. But then we're talking about the person who is rolling their sleeves in therapy and still struggling. And to them, I say, here are the common misconceptions, exactly what you said, Simone, like that they worry about it changing their personality. Absolutely not. I think it's, and so now that you've heard everything that I've said about why I'm a big believer in therapy itself, in terms of learning the skills that will stay with you for life. I also think of medication as like, putting on that life vest so that you can stay, keep your head above water long enough to be able to take instruction on learning how to swim. And imagine that you are learning or training to be a triathlete. And you know, when, and the reason I say that, because most people aren't learning to be a triathlete, like literally, but I think we live in a culture that wants us or believes that there is our best self, our best version out there. And I believe that too. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think that like my role as a psychiatrist isn't just to get you from, you know, being depressed to undepressed. Like I want to take you to the next level. I want to take you to being optimal. Who were you meant to be? What are all the things that you want to achieve? And in order for us to get to that state, you have to keep your head above water. So if you want to run, you know, or, or do this triathlon and you know how to run and you know how to bike, but you don't know how to swim, 
you have to keep your head above water and you're not going to be able to learn because we know that our learning goes way down. Our brain is hijacked, you know, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the fear centers in the brain and uh, end up affecting our ability to learn and lay down memory and gain knowledge. So if you want to get the most out of your therapy and you have a good therapist and you really like them, but at the same time you feel like you're suffering, I think, you know, I think what's hard for a lot of therapists is sometimes like for them to know when do I make that call and, you know, being able to recognize like, because I do both, I can even see that, that um, two parts in my own mind. Like, did I fail? If I have to prescribe somebody a medication, you know, or if I have to refer somebody for medication, you know, does that mean that we didn't work hard enough, that I didn't work hard enough, that they didn't work hard enough? And I would say that as a therapist, like to never blame yourself, to understand that there's sometimes like factors that are way beyond you, that they could still benefit from the therapy, but it's not going to change their personality. I have seen within six to eight weeks, like literally people beating themselves up for so long and suffering because I have done, I said, let's try and they're open or maybe like, maybe they've come in and they said, I'm, I'm on the fence about medication. I want to work with you in therapy. Let's see. And we try for six to eight weeks to see, and I give them homework assignments and let's say they're improving, but they're not at where they need to be. Or they're like, I'm still struggling. I'm having obsessive rumination. That's something I see all the time. I see that OCD is so underdiagnosed or OCPD, um, or their anxiety is very high. They're having insomnia. So it could be any number of things. And at some point we're like, why are we doing this to you? Why are we making you suffer when we could give you something? And, or maybe they're on the wrong medication. And I'll just talk about it quickly, like there's a genetic enzyme test that more people are using now. There are many of them, you know, some of them are still not 100% like validated and, you know, there's no, like, there's no push to actually use it. Some people think they're controversial, but they're basically a cheek swab test that gives you a report that says some medications based on this person's genetic ability to metabolize it, you know, um, the medication, this, this, these type of medications might be more efficacious. So that is amazing. Is this a new piece of technology? And is this something that most psychiatrists are now using in their practice? You know, a lot are, and I look at it as just one more data point that like, if you have been on multiple medications, let's say before seeing me and none of them have worked and in the interest of time, because I do think, you know, I remember asking a question in, in residency to one of my psychoanalytic instructors and nothing against psychoanalysis. I think it's amazing, but I said, what is the goal? Because people would be in analysis for like 20 years, right? And like, it's not just self-awareness or I want to get people better, right? So that's where the medical hat comes in is like, when you were to see, if you were to go to ENT because if you have sinus problems, you're not going to, you don't want a discussion. You want it, you want a treatment plan. And so the treatment plan is, um, is, is, is getting the person better as fast as possible. And if there's one more piece of information, it's relatively new, you know, in the last couple of years, why not? What's the harm? We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N O N, the sound meditation app for iPhone 
where no two sessions are alike. So you mentioned that sometimes people avoid taking or, or they get scared of taking medication because they fear that it'll transform their personality or, or have major physical changes like weight gain. But sometimes people are also avoiding medication for more cultural reasons. Like they come from a family, you know, for whatever reason that family does not agree with medication. Perhaps there's, there's a religious component to that. And I wonder how you deal with that issue if it comes up, like the, the stigma that can happen, culture, the cultural stigma against medication when somebody's yeah. really needing it and could really benefit. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, I'll say, like, I'll ask them, you know, sort of where, where it came from, who the key people are in their lives. Like I've had several patients whose parents were very much hesitant or against it. And I'll be open to saying, you know, I'm happy if you wanted to bring that person in, would they be open to it? You know, and a lot of times they don't end up taking you up on the offer, but it can be helpful. And then, you know, providing education to the patient about like, these are your options. These are the side effects. This is what would happen you know, giving them time to process and giving them time to have discussions and maybe be devil's advocate with their own family or, and, or just empowering them to say like, you know what, so what, like, they're not going to agree with you. This is your life, but it's your decision. You know? So it's like, it's, it's a very delicate balance of empowering, educating, um, keeping open dialogue, uh, allowing for family members to come in and then, or giving them the tools and resources to be able to say, look, these are the articles. You're welcome to read them. I don't have to, I'm an adult. Like I don't have to, you know, have, I don't, you know, I don't need your approval, but, um, but yes, yeah, so there's a lot of stigma and also in terms of like cultural presentations and manifestations, you know, um, in terms of healthcare disparities and like Asians, um, African-Americans will often present with physical symptoms. And you will see this a lot in Latino, uh, Latinx community, like there'll be physical manifestations like GI problems, like stomach, um, issues, headache, dizziness. Um, one of the roles that I used to wear was I was the medical director of the 9-11 mental health program at NYU. And like, we had a big, um, one of the big populations that we would see with folks from Latin America who were involved with cleanup, rescue, recovery. And also I saw first responders, so FDNY and, and NYPD. And I could tell you that everybody had a stigma, like, like for, for different reasons, you know, like culturally, professionally, what does this mean? You know, we're not tough, we're not brave. Um, so meeting the person where they're at. So if they're having all of the physical manifestations and that's how they want to define depression, like my heart is racing, I'm so anxious, but they won't use the word anxiety or they'll say like, you know, ataque, they're like nervios in like Spanish, like I'm having, you know, and, and yeah, I'm having trembling. However they want to define it, you know, that's okay. And to say to them, this medication will help you with that. So what is it that bothers you most about your situation? I stay up at, at night a lot. I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep or I can't get motivated. So like maybe they don't want that label. And I say like, I'm fine. I don't need to give you... In my mind, I'm thinking sort of diagnostically, and I can tell them, like, you have many of these symptoms. This is what you might call it. We don't have to give it a name, but it's worth trying. And if it doesn't work out for you, I'm, a, I'm, I'm open to exploring different options with you, and we don't, we don't have to try. But if somebody is really wanting to, you know, thinking about ending their life, then you just really have to push, and you got to get in as much support as you can. And you have to really then, like, there's not much room for dialogue. You have to be like, listen, I hear you. And that's where I feel like the therapeutic rapport comes in that if you, that's, it's so important to me that a person feel comfortable and you make a person feel comfortable by expressing genuine interest. Like you can't fake that. And a person knows, a patient knows when their provider really cares. And I feel like that to me is such an important component of all of this. And they trust you. 
and they, they, they can see that you're being methodical, that you're being empathic, that you're being careful, that you're being thorough, that you're giving them options. And I feel like that has been, I think, one of the biggest parts of why I feel like when I see people, most of them get better is because they know that I care. And then they, then they put their trust in your hands and they're like, you know what, I, I, I heard that you're listening to me. I, I, I feel and I see that you care about me. So if you think that that's the best option, and I will give them the options, I will give them the numbers, I will give them the side effects, then they feel like nobody's, you know, twisting their arm, nobody's pushing an agenda. And if you feel like you made the choice, you know, we always joke about like, let the person feel like when you're talking about toddlers or whoever, or, you know, pets or whatever, like, let them feel like they had the option, let them pick. Um, so I think the, the, the educational awareness and the element of choice and rapport are going to be key. I want to go back to what you said earlier. Why do you think it is that Asian, Black, Latinx communities um, have more somatic symptoms than other groups? I think for one, it might be more culturally acceptable. And that this framework, like I was in India a few months ago, and I have gone many times over the years. I lived there at one point for two years um, when I was much younger. And the, the, like, the concept doesn't exist, right? Like, and I think that these are cultures maybe that, you know, it depends on sort of like, how do you express emotion, culturally acceptable displays of emotion, of, of vulnerability, you know, um, where when the community is, is sort of the focal point, right? Like in the Western society, we're very much about the individual, right? Like this rugged individualism. And part of that means like my happiness matters and it's okay for me to invest in my happiness, especially in the last 10 years or like even 20 or 30, the self-help movement, self-care, like we allow for conversations that allow the self. I think that when you are in a culture where the self gets second place and the family unit, the community, you are answerable to a, a bigger society. Um, you're being selfish if you start talking about yourself. So in the East, talking about the self is considered selfish. So you're, it's, it's not socially acceptable. These things are considered shameful. They, they should be hidden. It's not seen as a medical, you know, treatment. Um, and it's, it's seen that you're, it, it's seen as something that you can do something about and you're just being difficult. And I think that in a lot of ways, we could even say that that existed in the United States, you know, in a lot of parts, in a lot of families where there's more of this idea of we don't talk about this. I have a lot of families who sort of have said like three or four generations have, you know, been brought, born and raised in, in America and they will say that we don't talk, you know, but we handle our stress by, let's say, drinking or, you know, there's other ways of coping. So I feel like stigma kind of is across communities and some more than others. Right. It can come up in like wasp culture as well, this sort of like Protestant way of being, stoicism, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it is making me think of a couple of clients that I work with who are first generation born with immigrant parents, one that's coming to mind who's Iranian. And a lot of our work, I, I struggle to balance between sort of my own values of independence and trying to also help her kind of find her own way between feeling that and making her own decisions while still feeling connected to her family and medication was something that she really struggled with because she wanted to take it, but she knew her, her family wouldn't approve. And 
I, you know, the work kind of helped her to actually not disclose to her family that this was something, you know, she's, she's an adult, she can make these decisions, um, but then also kind of processing this guilt around kind of not feeling connected or, or feeling like she was hiding something. Um, so I think it, it can be really complicated. And then a lot of the work becomes just around like what that means for her, her and her family's relationship and kind of her kind of pulling away from them in some ways. I'm so curious, this is a bit of a tangential question, but you were talking about the evolutionary perspective. And I'm curious about depression and evolution. Like, you know, it seems like anxiety, I can kind of understand how that would be adaptive for us as human beings, right? It's a, it's a fear response, right? It sends us into action, makes us more hypervigilant. But depression, I've always been curious about because so many people suffer from depression. And I wonder what your thoughts are about, you know, is this more of a modern day phenomenon? Is this something we're evolutionarily kind of wired for in ways? I mean, that's interesting. Like, there's almost, I guess, you know, you're, you're, I, I'm wondering if you're asking me, like, is there a silver lining? Like, was there some reason? Like, and that's fascinating for me to think of that, you know, on one hand, you could say, and I don't think anyone who's ever been depressed would say that I find benefit in it. But what, what's interesting to me is people will tell me that when I'm depressed, I'm less anxious. And it was, it's almost as if it's a way to turn the brain off. And it's to like, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. So I'm, I'm, I'm someone who always likes to be doing a lot of things. And when I get sick, I'm frustrated like physically. If I had the flu or if I had like a cold or a fever, I get frustrated because I'm like, I can't do, I need to exercise. I, you know, I need to do all these things. I don't like this feeling. But then almost there's a strange permission giving of like, I guess I can wrap my head around it to be like, I didn't get anything done. I was sick. I had the flu. It's okay. So it's like a permission giving for a person that might be hyperproductive or not, but maybe has that sort of unrelenting standard that they have and so a lot of people where like it's when they feel that their anxiety has gone out of check uh, out of control um they f the pathway i feel like becomes lack of control fear not being able to manage uncertainty and eventually helplessness and then you go down the the road to depression and obviously like they obviously coexist but i wonder if it's an adaptive response of being overwhelmed in some way not having and then you know, adaptive in the sense that it, it's like a, a short circuit, like some, something is about to go on fire. It's like a quick unplugging. The problem is it becomes maladaptive. And I don't think anyone consciously chooses to be depressed. So I want to be very careful about how I say that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And another theory as you were talking that I came up with, and this has no basis for anything, but just a possibility is when I think about depression, I think about depression as kind of an ailment of loneliness of, of aloneness. And if we're biologically wired to be in a herd, to be in a group, to connect with community, then depression is also a red flag that tells us, okay, start to connect to others. Um, because if you don't, you die. Yes, no, then that's great. And like, the, and, and I, what I wish would happen, like, and I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because this is a huge educational point. I mean, like we could even do like a whole, you know, there's a whole another hour somewhere about loneliness, you know, and the loneliness crisis yes. that we're experiencing. Yes. And just, that's, Absolutely. We should. It's 15, <laughs> yeah. 15, 15 cigarettes per day, you know, it's loneliness is the equivalent of it and how the Gen Z, you know, is experiencing it and how suicide rates have gone up. So like, you know, we're at an intersection of, of a variety of crises, like coronavirus, pandemic, you know, sort of, you know, 
trying to become more of an anti, you know, sort of racist thinking, um, but the crisis of loneliness and opioid suicide, there's an intersection of that and feeling disconnected from that. And I think that that's a great point of, if I, I would love, and that's why I think therapy and, and, and or, or some sort of mental health guidance is important to say, this is what you should do to check in with yourself, you know? And I've been talking, and I don't know if you guys have seen it in, the, in some of the interviews about the four M's of mental health. And, and I just came up with that because I thought it was a quick and easy for people to be able to take away and almost just check the box every day. And if you keep a journal to write it, you know, just write four M's and put checks next to them. And, and the four M's are mindfulness, movement, mastery, and meaningful engagement. And I would love if people just had, you know, a, a general awareness of, Oh, just the way I go to, if I go to a dental checkup, hopefully people get, you know, they, they, they get that, they get routine screening, screenings of mammograms, pap smears, whatever it might be to add this mental health screening. You know, I don't know, somebody was laughing at me about the idea, but primary care doctors are doing it more and more so. Um, and, and, but one thing that I asked, I thought this was interesting. Um, a friend of mine, I had um, shared a social media post about it. And a friend of mine had written to me, you know, uh, my primary care's uh, office does ask about it, but it's usually like a tech that comes in, may not have the best mental health training. They're just checking boxes. And I always say that there's ways of asking questions. There's ways to check boxes and there's ways to open doors. And if you're checking boxes with the person, you might ask them what we call like the PH2Q. There's two questions or like asking some anxiety scale where the person's like telling you that they're depressed and the tech is like, okay, great. Right. And it seems so important, too, because there's such a relationship between mental and physical health. So as somebody's mental health deteriorates, usually their physical health does it as well. So if you're as a doctor, not addressing it and not providing resources, it's also doing a disservice medically. Um, totally. You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up because we know for a fact, 100 percent, so many studies show time and time again that. Um, people who suffer like chronic psychiatric illness, that their lifespan on average is like maybe even seven years shorter. So sort of like chronic untreated illness, people who are depressed suffer from more chronic medical comorbidities. And it makes sense. Like the same reason why in postpartum depression, it's so important that a woman gets treated because postpartum or even um, like, like, you know, sort of perinatal depression so even while the woman is pregnant, because she's not going to be getting proper nutrition, proper medical treatment, um, treatment adherence is not good. So depression affects your ability to keep your head above water, period. So think if your head is literally drowning, everything in the world that you're missing, including your doctor's appointments, you're not going to be going to your cancer screening appointments, because you're not making them, because you can't make a phone call, because you can't get out of bed. You feel guilty, you feel worthless, that you can't do any of these things. You beat yourself up. It's a cycle of rumination. So you don't get to take care of yourself and you, by the time you present to the doctor, you know, maybe you're talking about stage four cancer because you missed four years of mammograms. So we don't make it easy for people in the United States to get treatment. And I hope that that changes in, you know, in the future. So we've talked about the, the importance of, of treatment and medication. What, when is the right time to go off medication? It's such a great question. And one of the things that I say is like, when people who are experiencing, let's say, the first episode of depression, they say that at least nine to 12 months, roughly, is the guideline that you should stay on it. And I'm a big believer that if you're going to be on medication, if you have access, please take the time to also enter into therapy along with it. Because what's going to happen is if you don't and you're just on the medication and you get off of it, 
you are going to be often dealing, putting yourself at risk, like I shared some of those numbers, of a second episode. And if you haven't learned skills and then another trigger hits you, you know, there's this idea of sort of kindling or priming your brain to a second episode. Each episode that you have leaves you more exposed so that it takes less and less stress the next time to throw you over, you know, sort of the edge, metaphorically speaking. And um, so when uh, often people will come to me and I'll say, so they'll, they'll say, I got off of the medication because it didn't work or um, I got off of it because it worked. And I was like, okay, explain that to me. And I totally get it now because they're like, my life was fine and I didn't need it. But then the symptoms came back again. So the way to avoid that is learning skills, coping skills, being very clear, making connections between antecedents of triggers of, you know, whether it be family issues, like, okay, my mother triggers me not to hang out with her all day long, so that's what I'm not going to do, you know, or knowing the circumstances and not putting yourself, trying to re not repeat history. But I, I, I know it sounds like a lot of work, but your best bet for getting, being able to get off of medication is putting a lot of these things in place. So when they get up, when people want to get off of medication, I ask them like, okay, what are your reasons around it? And I like to hear that there's something sort of well formulated more than just, well, I'm feeling fine because you might be feeling fine most, most likely because of the medication and the therapy, obviously, if you're in it. But the problem is people will say as soon as they start feeling better, I don't need this anymore. And so again, just the way I very carefully and want to responsibly put you on medication and not put it on, put you on it before you need it. The same goes for getting you off of it. So it's not like I'm wedded to you being on medication. I don't take it personally. I would actually look at it as a success story if you are able to successfully navigate all the challenges in life, the ups and downs that are normal without it. And I'm not someone who wants to have to take medication myself if I don't have to for anything. So I would say, okay, if you're in a major transition right now, the person says, I want to get off the medication. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? They're like, I'm getting a promotion and I'm going to be swamped when we're working hundred hours a week. Then we have to think, does it make sense? I'm moving. Um, I'm going to be under incredible stress. So any major life transition that's happening, I would just caution the person to say, I hear what you're saying. Let's have a dialogue about it. What's the reason? Now, if they've gained weight, like to me, like that's a problem, you know, and it's very tricky because, but, you know, you do gain weight. And if you're sort of like you know, somebody who cares about how you, you know, look and appear and you don't want to be a certain weight, plus it's not healthy and you want to think about all sorts of metabolic problems that happen when you're heavier. I don't look at, for, depending on the disorder and the symptoms and the history and what a person has been through, you, you can help figure, figure out, is this someone who's going to be on it for life? So if we're talking about some of the psychotic illnesses or more severe affective illnesses, yeah, a person might need to be on it for long-term maintenance. But then there are people who are like, this was the first time that this ever happened to me. My life is different. Those circumstances no longer exist. I was able to navigate them. I'm in a better job and I'm in a better relationship and I'm in a better place in my life. Then I say, fine, let's, let's, let's take a chance. And then it would sort of be very carefully, at least over like, you know, a two to three month period of slowly getting off of medication, being aware of what the discontinuation symptoms, withdrawal symptoms are, um, monitoring them very carefully. And, you know, I see a lot of times where like in pregnancy, women will want to get off of medication. And again, you have to weigh the risks and benefits that there are, you know, neonatal distress, um, you know, syndrome where uh, babies might have, you know, trouble breathing. And, you know, in terms of birth defects, you know, for the most part, they're safe. But again, you're taking a risk. So you have to ask yourself, there's a risk either way, you know, when it comes to uh, pregnancy and being on medication. If you're not on medication or you abruptly stop it, a lot of times women during pregnancy will get depressed again. And then there's a risk of preterm delivery or in, intrauterine growth retardation 
or preeclampsia. So depression itself carries a variety of physical risks in pregnancy and in the newborn. And we also know that when you look at studies, you see that children born to moms with untreated depression later, age five or six, have you know, sort of cognitive challenges or intellectual challenges or their own depression. So untreated depression, not to blame the mom, stigmatize her, not to make her feel bad, itself carries a risk for her and for the baby. But then, yes, there are all the physical complications or side effects that we may not know about. And so that's why maybe even consulting a reproductive psychiatrist. So I'm big on even um, being able to refer or get second opinions consults with my patients. So like I'll send them to a colleague that I trust to say, listen, I have all of this information and I'm presenting this to you. I also think that if you felt comfortable and wanted to meet with someone who just does this all day long, so you get, you know, you, or, or I might do what we call curbside consult where I might take the case to a colleague and say, is there anything that I'm missing? Is there anything that I should know about? But I do respect the patient's decision to get off of medication for any number of reasons. And I just say, let's do it slowly, carefully, and responsibly. Great. So as we're coming to a close, um, do you have any advice for our listeners if they're considering whether medication is right for them? So the first thing I would say is, you know, find a good mental health provider because this is such an individual decision. And we've talked about that there are so many variables that people don't realize that it's a complex one and it's a journey and you're entering into a journey and it's your life, right? And you want to be able to think about what are all the reasons why you're considering it, not considering it, what your fears and your anxieties are. So, you know, obviously our conversation today is educational. It's not for medical purposes, but I would say, you know, take your time. The best thing that you can do for yourself or for a loved one is taking the time to find the right provider because it, it is a relationship and a rapport. And number two, don't hesitate to break up with one if you're not feeling it, you know, and do a phone screening. I always tell people, and I like to talk to patients beforehand to see if it would be a right fit. And, you know, there's no harm. Uh, like, uh, there's no, no one takes needs to take offense if, if it doesn't feel like a good fit and it doesn't work out. And ask questions, you know, so I would say, Ask the provider, what's your background? What's your training? And it feels so weird because we're so used to like our, you know, providers sort of putting them, you know, um, in an expert position and feeling as if we don't have the authority. And I would say like, take some agency, educate yourself, look at their profiles online, see what their background is and see what their specialties are and um, see if it would be the right fit. And how can people find you? So um, you can find me online on uh, Instagram. I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. At, it's at Dr. Sue Varma. Um, at, and then the whole word, Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R, Sue Varma, um, on all of those social media um, platforms. So I'd love for your listeners to follow me. Yes, we'll put it on our site. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. We'll have to have you back. I feel like there's so much more to explore. I know. We tapped all of these different areas that is yeah. much yes. more to expand on. Great. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank Love you. talking. Your podcast is wonderful. So thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. 
So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Lovelink show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Thank you.